Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, Communications Manager at MLI, and we're pleased to bring you an insightful conversation between MLI Research Advisory Board member, Professor Elliot Tepper, and Quinton Hodgson, a senior international and defense researcher at the RAND Corporation, focusing on cybersecurity, cyber operations, risk management, and command and control. The two discuss the NATO leaders' meeting in London and challenges facing the alliance. They also grapple with the challenges posed by Russian President Vladimir Putin to the security and stability of Europe and the North Atlantic region. With that said, we hope you enjoy their timely and important conversation. Quentin, thank you so much for coming all the way to Ottawa, and in our winter in particular, uh, from sunny Los Angeles. The Rand Corporation, of course, is well known as a reliable source of independent analysis. Uh, it's been there for a number of years, and uh, those of us who are lucky enough to occasionally see the reports all benefit from them. Today, we're talking about NATO, the uh, celebration of 70 years of the summit of the uh, NATO existence, and there's sort of a summit in London, but it's really meant to be not a summit meeting per se, but a gathering of all the major heads of government to say 70 years of the existence of the longest successful military alliance ever. But we'll have to see where is it going and how strong is it and what are the challenges in particular. And that's really an area where you've done a lot of work. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the podcast and uh, thanks for inviting me to Ottawa. Actually, it's, it, it makes for a bracing change to be here in winter <laughs> from, from Southern California. Uh, also note that RAND, uh, as an institution, has NATO beat by a couple of years. We celebrated our 70th anniversary <laughs> two years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I, I think NATO, it, it's often said and probably too much of a, a trite saying to say it's an inflection point, but it's certainly at a, a an at a point in its history where it, it's facing some uh, renewed challenges uh, from from the East, from Russia. It's facing also somewhat, uh, I would say, uh, not an existential crisis, but at least an ex- existential questioning about whether NATO, which tends to be the, the question that people are always asking, particularly with these big celebrations, you know, what is the purpose of NATO? Where is it going? What is its, how, how much is it holding to its founding uh, values and, and uh, motivations and how much does it need to adapt and change? And so Certainly, NATO has gone through an incredible amount of change, and and I think that's something that NATO should actually take some pride in. Um, it has not stayed focused on one thing. It has it has grown and adapted with time, and we've seen that quite a bit. Uh, whether it was facing the uh, response to the attacks on the United States of 9/11, 2001, uh, facing the issues related to out of area operations, uh, and now facing issues uh, around uh, increased uh, activity in cyberspace and how it deals with cyberspace as an operational domain, as well as other challenges that are beyond purely military, but the political sphere in which NATO finds itself. So at age 70, it's a good time to think. Yeah. What are we up to now? Where are we going? But you've called it an existential uh, issue. Is NATO really facing such a crisis of who are we, where are we going, that the existence of this alliance is itself in question? 
I don't think so. I, and, and I said existential, but I said not an existential crisis, just an existential question. And I think it's probably a useful thing anyway for every uh, every organization of such longstanding uh, and such a wide membership, in, you know, 29 members c- covering hundreds of millions of people to multiple continents. 30. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that it really looks at, um, you know, what are our fundamental values and sort of reaffirm those a little bit like uh, it, renewing its vows every once in a while to, <laughs> to figure out to say that we are truly committed to these because we were talking about this before we came on air, but this question of uh, having to not only communicate amongst ourselves what we think the value and purpose of NATO is, but to a broader audience, to the people who that NATO countries actually represent, uh, to their populations. And that's not just trying to uh, articulate what the challenges are that NATO faces, but what NATO brings to the table. And I think that's something that has been questioned, uh, Mm -hmm. certainly in multiple spheres, um, but it's something that NATO needs to continuously address. It's never going to be a settled issue that NATO is a fit and proper institution forever and ever. It needs to continue to uh, stake its claim for why it's an important part of the international security architecture. Right. And of course, it's uh, it's two moments that could coalesce and glue the place together, the, the alliance together, uh, has to do with its origins, which were immediately after the Second World War, uh, it was against an expanding Soviet Union at that time, Russia. So this was explicitly a defense of the democratic free countries against the potential threat of, a, of, of an expanding uh, communist system. That is, it's a Cold War artifact. And the Cold War ended. So then the question became, what's the, the use of NATO? Mm-hmm. Then Crimea happened. So once Crimea showed the utility of having a a uh, defense against an expansive Russia in this case, it gave a raison d'etre again. But now what? So what is the change in the geopolitical situation that is such a a concern for NATO? And what is the change in terms of the technological evolution, which you mentioned as cyber? Those are two things well worth exploring more. Certainly. Well, I think first to your uh, question about what has changed, you mentioned Crimea. Uh, obviously, Ukraine's not a member of NATO, but has uh, had an ongoing relationship with NATO. I, I remember when I was a student in London in the 1990s, and the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK was very forthright that, that NATO membership was something they were aiming for. And Ukraine has gone back and forth in its own approach to it. And, and certainly, the Ukrainian crisis of the last few years has, to a certain extent, been an outgrowth of Russia seeing a broader integration of Ukraine into the West and Russia opposes that. Russia really does see Ukraine as part of it, not just its sphere of influence, but really its its sphere of political activity and wants to hinder that integration. And so that was a challenge to NATO, but also individual countries and to the EU, quite frankly, how to respond to a naked act of of breaking international law on the part of the Russian government when they seized Crimea, but also the incursions into Ukraine, Um, the blatant uh, denial of of activity that everybody could see was happening uh, and sort of become the norm to do things and then blatantly deny them uh, and and decry them as, as somehow fake. But... Uh, so I think that has re- renewed the the emphasis in the alliance on needing to see itself uh, 
actually in some ways going back to its origins. That is that it is uh, a military alliance and that it does have to provide for the common defense of its members uh, and that it does need to deter uh, these potential acts of aggression. So that's why the Baltics, uh, the Baltic countries are so engaged and want uh, the uh, NATO countries to be engaged there and show a real presence there. So that's, that's one piece of it. Um, on the technological side, as we've seen, there's a growth of cyber threats uh, to uh, individual countries uh, and to uh, systems and networks, whether it's the critical infrastructure on which we all rely for mm -hmm. our economic and social well-being, just to keep the lights on, the water running, uh, trains running, and, and so forth, uh, but also how... Uh, actors across the world, but particularly you think most uh, specifically about the Russian actors, how they're engaging in disinformation campaigns to sow discord and try to uh, undermine the cohesion within the alliance, but also within individual countries to sort of undermine that political compact that says that security alliances in the West are about integrating countries towards common defense and for common values. And that's something that I think Russia is trying to undermine. Yes. And cyber is kind of inexpensive and hard to detect uh, method of doing so. The whole question of the role of NATO and cyber is coming increasingly to the fore. You've, uh, you've documented this yourself in great detail, so that NATO not only is land, sea, and air, but now cyberspace as well. This is uh, an area still evolving. Can you describe our current state of play in terms of cyber and NATO? Sure. So cyber as, uh, particularly from the defensive point of view. So when we talk about cyberspace, we're talking about the networks and systems that underpin how we exchange and process information. So that's sort of the physical infrastructure of cyberspace. Then there are the things that occur at, at, at more the, at the virtual level is in how those systems interact. So it, you really have to think about it at multiple levels. Um, and so, the alliance first addressed this uh, going back to 2002 in the Prague summit, but I think it uh, really took on impetus with the 2014 Wales summit where there was an enhanced cyber defense policy was announced and that the this concept of international law applies to cyberspace just as it applies elsewhere. And also this concept that an Article 5 declaration, sort of the, an attack on one means mm -hmm. is an attack on all, could also stem and be triggered by a, a cyber attack. So that was a, a major evolution of uh, NATO's thinking on the topic. So it wasn't just a matter of protecting networks and systems, but really fundamentally, could this be a threat that, uh, that is going to call NATO to respond and, and, and move forward? Then that was followed up with the Warsaw Summit in 2016, where uh, cyberspace was declared an operational domain. And I think at that point, everybody understood sort of at a, at a very high level that this was an important step forward. But then NATO had to take a step another step and say, well, what does this mean? How do we make that real? When we say that we are operating in the land domain, everybody knows what that means. We can exercise, we can put tanks on the ground and people, and we can deploy and we can do uh, uh, multi-domain operations with the naval forces, such as they did with the Trident Juncture uh, yeah. exercise last year uh, in in uh, Scandinavia. Major exercise. Yeah, ex exactly. Uh, but when it came to cyberspace, people were still unsure what that meant um, and what kind of capabilities and capacity NATO as an alliance, so as an institution needed, and what kind of capabilities and capacity do the individual countries uh, require. And so that was part of 
that evolution of trying to figure out what capabilities do we need? How do we plan for operations in cyberspace? What kind of capabilities are different countries going to contribute, offensive as well as defensive capabilities? And how do we carry that forward so that you make sure that NATO can actually truly operate in this domain to defend itself? Because we know that if and when it came to, uh, God forbid, a shooting war with an adversary, we know that that shooting war is not going to be constrained to the physical domain that the adversary, whoever it may be, will come after NATO, will come after NATO forces in the cyber domain, try to attack our networks, our systems, try to attack the command and control infrastructure, try to overwhelm those systems so we can't communicate with each other. And then I think a third major challenge that we see emerging is they will also try to shape international opinion and so divisiveness amongst the NATO allies in that kind of conflict through the use of dif- disinformation, which could be cyber enabled, or it could be mm. old school radio and, and, and television as well. This is an offensive weapon. Uh, if, if it can disable or affect command and control and all the other areas you just mentioned, I'd like to return a bit to Article 5. And just we should remind ourselves that there's only 14 articles in the NATO uh, original uh, NATO treaty, Article 5 being the operational, uh, most operational, best well-known component, which is an attack on one is an attack on all, collective defense, mm-hmm. uh, which sets it apart from other kinds of defense treaties. How clear is it that there will be a the entire alliance uh, gathering around to defend one member when something or another happens in cyber? Is there a trigger? Is there a red line? Is it? Are we still evolving in that area, or do we know? I, I don't think we know. I think it's unclear, but we also have to remember that Article 5 has only been triggered once, once. in the entire alliance's history. So we don't have a lot of practice even thinking about uh, right. the physical realms. And the question of, ultimately, it is a military alliance, but it's going to be a political decision. Um, about what constitutes uh, an attack uh, on a country. I think that clearly uh, those kinds of activities in cyberspace that could be directly linked to to death, uh, to destruction of public property of of enough of a scale that is quite frankly noticeable and could be timely attributed, which is another key question we can get into, I I think that would motivate certainly the consultations to happen, whether that would then lead to NATO organizing a similar kind of operation as it did with uh, in Afghanistan following um, the September 11th, 2001 attacks is an entirely different question. Uh, But the other thing is, uh, except in a very few cases, we haven't seen cyber attacks, so to speak, that have really resulted in demonstrable harm mm-hmm. uh, to in, in many cases. So I think when people point to cyber attacks that have caused uh, significant uh, impact to critical infrastructure, for example, people point to the cyber attacks on the Ukrainian power grid in 2015, and right. then there was one again in 2016. The, the effects of those were actually relatively minor and easily handled. Uh, in the first case, it was about 225,000 people were without power for a few hours. Uh, and they were able to switch over to manual uh, labor to to get things back online. It's, it's it, Although it 
can be seen as an attack, or if people look at what the North Koreans did in terms of attacking Sony Pictures Entertainment right. uh, several years ago in 2014. They didn't like the movie being made. Exactly. Or on uh, uh, another actor's attack on the Sands Casino, for example, um, it, which is attributed to Iranian uh, cyber actors. Those are all clearly violations of national sovereignty to have an impact. The question, does that rise to the level of prompting a military response, we still have to go back to international law that the response has to be proportionate. Uh, proportionate does not, of course, mean it has to be in kind. So a response to a cyber attack doesn't need to be a cyber response. But certainly it, it still has to be proportionate. And whether a, an attack on a power grid that results in people losing power for a couple of hours re, uh, should result in uh, a, a significant military response, I think that would be seen as overreach. Uh, but that doesn't mean that NATO can't just sit idly by and let these things happen without establishing uh, that these are unacceptable uh, and in many cases illegal activities under international law. You mentioned in passing uh, something that we don't think about a lot. We're carrying on this component of a discussion on NATO because this is kind of cutting edge. This is where the most recent evolution of NATO has gone. We should also remind ourselves it does a lot of other things. But staying with this subject just for the moment, the fact that this isn't only necessarily defensive but can be offensive, NATO is the pointy end of the stick. This NATO is the kinetic component of a Western alliance, of a NATO, Western meaning uh, those states which we consider Western at the minute. Mm -hmm. We'll have to have talk about Turkey uh, in a moment. But... Uh, is an offensive capacity likely to be an evolving element of what NATO is all about well, in cyber? I, I think ultimately uh, NATO is always going to adhere to its foundational principles, which is, is, is intended to be a defensive alliance. Um, and it is there for the collective defense, as you, you noted, for, for its, its members and its alliance as a whole. Uh, this question about using offensive weapons, uh, you, you mentioned something uh, earlier on about the technology uh, being offensive or defensive. Uh, technology, for the most part, is, is actually neutral. It can be applied in a lot of different right. ways, I'm sure you agree. The question is, uh, what ways will NATO choose to try to integrate cyberspace capabilities into its military planning? It's exercises to demonstrate that it actually knows how to do this. And is it going to include that in any kind of uh, response that it may have to undertake militarily, uh, operationally to uh, an event that's happening in the world? And that could include using cap cyberspace capabilities actively, I'll say, to try to stem, uh, prevent, or uh, even defeat uh, an, an adversary. And that would include offensive capabilities that individual nations would be contributing to the general cause. But in the end, it's supposed to be in the context of a defensive uh, operation. Which is what NATO is all about, exactly. as you pointed out. Well, we've had this uh, more extended discussion because you have rare knowledge in this particular area. You've done a, more work on this than most people. So thank you very much for clarifying that aspect of NATO. We should remind ourselves, this being in Canada at the moment, and a Canadian audience primarily, although I hope we go global, but NATO is very important to Canada. Canada was one of the founding members of NATO. Lester Pearson helped write the initial drafts and promoted all this and put in Article 2, that is, 
although Article 5 gets all the attention, Article 2 said NATO can do more than military. It can have a political and um, uh, nation unifying, international community unifying aspect, basically also democracy promotion, although it wasn't specified as such. And NATO does that. NATO has built on the Canadian uh, initiative uh, to create a sense of a Western alliance facing whatever threats comes its way. Now we have a situation where what's it all about? Uh, and incidentally, on the Canadian side of things, we have taken part in every kinetic act, every military activity NATO has ever undertaken, Canada has been part of. Also, it's been stated over and over again, NATO is the cornerstone of our security and defense. So that, that component, uh, Canada is very active in, but then we have the broader case of where's NATO going now? What are the areas of dissension in NATO? So some questions on that. This has essentially been built as an anti-Russian expansion into Europe alliance. But meanwhile, we're in Afghanistan. Uh, Canada has troops right now in Latvia as part of a NATO exercise, uh, strategic uh, deterrence force, otherwise known as a tripwire. So Canada is actually eyeball to eyeball uh, with the Kaliningrad uh, salient. We are there. So Canada is a component, but we're a component of what? Uh, right now, there's lots of concern about whether NATO can have the internal cohesion for its own reasons, quite apart from what Russia may be doing, keeping in mind a weakening of NATO is a plus for Russia, but the weakening of NATO isn't exclusively only to Russian disinformation campaigns. You may wish to talk further about what Russia's doing in terms of disinformation campaigns. But there's also the issue of just today, tomorrow, uh, we have the president of Turkey coming, who has been openly feuding with the president of France. Macron has said, you know, NATO is brain dead. And he, Erdogan has responded, no, you're the one who's brain dead. This is not high rhetoric uh, and, and calling everybody to arms. It shows a lot of internal dissension. Does NATO have enough focus and enough internal resources to hold together in the face of the external concerns, Russia's and disinformation campaigns and its deployment of military forces near all the, all the perimeters of NATO? But also, what about the internal dissensions? That's a lot in that question. Yes. Uh, and, Take your time. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's an important question that really NATO has to ask itself um, as part of this you know, celebration that's coming up this, this week uh, to look at, as I mentioned before, renewing its vows, so to speak. And part of that is looking each other in the eye and saying, uh, each of those leaders saying that we have committed to each other in a way that is unusual in, in the course of human history, let alone anything else, in which we're um, committing ourselves in a way that most military alliances don't. Most military alliances have tended to be very transactional in their nature. Yes. They've been for a specific purpose, and everybody was never really sure of each other what was going to happen after they achieved that purpose. And that's not been the case for NATO. And so I think Beside, although we think of NATO, as you mentioned, the single most successful uh, military alliance in the history of, of, of humanity, and some people, it's often described because it, 
it quote unquote won the Cold War. But I think it's more than that because it's proven and demonstrated that a military alliance can endure and evolve and can seek to uh, to contribute to a greater cause than just the individual national interests of each of its alliance uh, alliance members, which is not to say that they don't have their in- individual interests. And as we've even been talking about today, each of them also, I think, has a different threat perspective. Uh, the Baltic uh-huh. countries are are clearly want to be a member of NATO, uh, or members of NATO because of their history of occupation by the Soviet Union uh, and and annexation that was never recognized by the West officially, but you know was de facto for uh, from the end of uh, World War II to the end of the Cold War, and so they see a very real uh, out growth of their membership. And it's not just transactional, it's, it's fundamental to their independence. And that's why they want to have the United States and Canada and others there, not just in terms of rhetoric, but in terms of physical presence, not just as a tripwire, but as a demonstration of commitment um, uh, and to the greater, uh, it the greater good of the alliance. I think some other countries probably see less uh, immediate threat, for example, from Russia, or they see it as a mode to integrate themselves with other countries where they may have also economic interests and political interests. Um, I think uh, Turkey, for example, probably for a very long time saw its membership in NATO, not just about uh, mutual defense, but also as a pathway towards greater integration in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's run into some rocky patches in in the past uh, 15 years, uh, clearly. So I I think each of those countries is going to come in with certain things this week for the celebration and for for, uh, future summits. Um, And part of that is recommitting towards the broader values, the the alliance. Um, And I think that's something that fundamentally still has to be brought to the fore every time they meet, that this is not just a transactional relationship. This is a broader uh, a broader objective that we're looking for, which is, I think, also about uh, a security alliance that serves as a bedrock to broader security issues uh, globally. Um, you know, we've tried to set up similar uh, constructs in other parts of the world, and they haven't worked. Uh, and so it's 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 unique in, in currently. Right. Uh, and so I think that continues to have its own value. Yes, the uniqueness of NATO, I think, isn't widely understood or appreciated. The fact that it has evolved well beyond its origins, and yet still is cohesive enough to carry on activities. We NATO does things together. Um, which takes us to some really sensitive areas as well. The reason the whole question of brain dead has been raised is that America no longer apparently seem to want to lead. And America spends more on NATO than all the other states combined. And now there's a president of the United States who says, hey, that isn't fair. But this isn't originating with this president. The whole question of burden sharing um, has been there a long time. It's been put rather starkly and differently by this president, who reportedly, by the way, will know uh, by the time this podcast <laughs> airs, will know what he actually says and does at uh, in London. But he's apparently going to go and say, look, I, I have brought NATO back. I've made NATO great again because everybody's paying more, mm-hmm. except maybe Canada. And um, therefore, everything's fine with NATO. But we don't know how long that will last. But the real question comes, can a multipolar world, an evolving world, without America's strong leadership of NATO, sustain itself? 
What's the role here of NATO with a world which no longer has only one hegemon, and that hegemon seems reluctant to lead? Uh, we could go into long discourse about reluctance and leadership in, in American history. Uh, I think the post-World War II moment um, was uh, in some ways a unique moment of, of U.S. leadership, but I think also found, as you were pointing to, fundamentally the, the, the foundation of international relations is shifting. As you see the rise of China, not just as an economic, but as a political power, not just in the East Asia region, but more broadly, uh, is fundamentally changing the dynamics and China is playing a much uh, stronger role in international institutions, but internationally has been engaged in military operations such as the anti-piracy um, campaign in, uh, around the coast of Somalia, which we, we seem to have forgotten, but I'm, is, mm. is ongoing. Uh, and we are also seeing that Russia, as after the 90s and economic doldrums, has reemerged to try to assert itself internationally. And so uh, the U.S. is, I don't think, has retreated from leadership. I think it's the fact that the, the dynamics have changed um, and we've emerged and evolved from a pretty unique unipolar moment after, certainly after the collapse of the Warsaw Pact in the Soviet Union in right. 1989 to 91. I was just in Berlin, uh, and it was you know the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, right. uh, just just this past month. And people were asking, what what did this fundamentally mean? Uh, and I think, like anything that happens in life, we tend to get this euphoric moment at the beginning when we see things and we imagine all the possibilities. And then sometimes the realism sets in that things are harder to accomplish than you think, that the that the consensus that maybe was initially there will, will dissipate somewhat. Um, and that that's something that continues to have uh, to to have to be supported. And, you know, the United States is still militarily engaged in NATO, still provides, you know, the the, the military leadership as well, is still providing the, uh, not just monetary contribution, but is participating in the exercises and training, uh, still hosts one of the two operational, you know, headquarters. Uh, and so, uh, whether the president of the United States and his uh, engagement with the leaders is certainly different in character and tone, I would certainly agree with that. Whether that means that there is a lack of uh, U.S. leadership, I, th I think I would challenge. I think that still is present there. Um, we're just going through a very interesting moment of evolution and what that looks like. And as you pointed out, just to, to finish up the, the thought, this uh, push on NATO allies to invest more in their own uh, contributions towards NATO, but their own defense uh, programs has uh, been ongoing for, for decades now. Uh, Secretary uh, Gates was uh, pretty forthright in some of his speeches, and, and Nash Carter as well. Uh, but it goes back even before then uh, to, to, to others. Um, it, it, certainly the current president is uh, unique in his style compared to other presidents. Uh, and so what he says this week, I'm sure everybody will be anticipating uh, both with trepidation as well as uh, with, uh, and if you're correct and he comes forward and says that things have improved vastly in NATO, uh, that that would be a moment to seize upon to, uh, to try right. to push things forward. Well, in terms of the, uh, the role of America in the world, uh, as you pointed out, uh, alluded to, it has always fluctuated. That is, at the very founding of the alliance, uh, the, it passed overwhelmingly under, under Harry Truman, and there was Senator Vandenberg led this, but uh, Senator Taft of Ohio 
said at the time, I'm opposing this because what it means is America is going to pay for the rearmament of Western Europe. And we hear echoes of that in this current president uh, in his transactional, transactional nature of, of how he views the world. The question then is uh, the future of Europe. The future of Europe in this case has to do with Brexit. We should talk about that. One of the big changes that's happening in the world, and perhaps Russia has played a role in disinformation, in fomenting dissension, but there was something there to foment. So as within NATO itself, but in the case of uh, the UK, it's pretty clearly demonstrated that they played a role in stimulating the vote saying, yes, let's break out, let's take the UK out. (coughs) That in turn will change the equation in terms of the strength of Europe, the EU, but not necessarily of NATO because the UK stays in NATO once, and they apparently are January 31st, going to remove themselves from the EU. Can you comment on this mixture of a weakening EU, but still a strong NATO, or is it a weakening of NATO, or will the UK put more chips now, more weight into NATO because they have to? Yeah, and well, time will tell, which is always the the good academic response. Yes. I think what you'll see uh, when and if Brexit actually does come to pass and and uh, the UK is disentangled from the European Union, I think that that's not necessarily going to lead to a doubling down of uh, UK commitment to NATO. I mean, UK is very committed to NATO, but of course it has some significant budgetary issues it needs to address um, for its own military uh, modernization of its nuclear deterrent and so forth. Uh, Where I think it could potentially play out is a reinvigoration of EU security policy. Um, Mm -hmm. As you know, particularly uh, from France, but some others, there's been a longstanding uh, tendency to try to push a separate or a a strengthened security policy and and by implication military policy for the European Union. Independently. Yeah. And and I think what the UK has been one of sort of uh, one of the actors who's been pushing back on that um, uh, for for decades now. And with the UK exiting EU, I think it removes a potential roadblock to, to uh, for example, uh, Macron may decide that as part of his brain dead uh, NATO, he wants to transition the focus towards reinvigorating that discussion in the EU. And that's possible that it could gain some traction. I, I think there'll be some uh, still significant headwinds that they would have to uh, uh, face in that context. And I also, I should uh Emphasize. I don't know that that's what France is planning to do. Right. Just it, to me, it seems a natural thing given given past efforts on their part. So I, I think that's the major um, point of emphasis. Where it could double back on the NATO question would be how much do European partners then decide to actually invest in that effort and reinvigorate that? And to what extent does it potentially have a detrimental impact on NATO? If it leads to greater military capability in the in the member countries, then I think it's all to the good. But the question becomes setting up of competing operational infrastructure and command structures and so forth. Then that just tends to bleed away the attention. So that's it the one place. It actually right. doesn't seem too imminent because yeah. even within the EU, there's the conceptual difference between a European army right. and then the Hungary and Poland saying, well, maybe we'll have an army of Europeans, uh, which is, a, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll have separate forces who might contribute. So there won't be an autonomous uh, European force in the near future, it seems. But if it does, then 
it would indeed uh, perhaps conflict with a NATO role, and then NATO's role has to be re-examined, yeah. et cetera. Uh, in a world of unlimited money and resources, that wouldn't necessarily happen, but we're in the opposite kind of world. There's only so much that will be invested in a military alliance, which takes us back to what kind of alliance NATO is and will be going forward in the future, because the need for rethinking NATO in a world of shifting geopolitics and a rising China, uh, but still a determined and returning Russia, which wants to undermine both the EU and NATO. All of that then leads to a questioning of, is this really an alliance of interest and values beyond the military in order to have an effective military component, or can an effective military component sustain itself without that coalescing of, well, really, this is a group of like-minded countries, generally yeah. speaking, and uh, we are not sure where that's going. Do you have any thoughts on it? Well, as, as I heard a, um, a NATO official recently say, uh, NATO is a defender of democracies, not democracy. And I, I'm not sure if I necessarily fully agree with that. I think NATO has to, in order to endure, be more than simply a, a pure military alliance. It, 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 it is a broader... Uh, concept about the way Western countries, however you wish to define that, um, see their role in in providing for the common security and and, and collective defense, right. and that's about supporting something that's broader than uh, it's embedded in national interest, but it is broader than national interest as well. If NATO becomes purely a defensive alliance that is transactional in nature, then I don't think it has a, a long-term future because then people will make purely a calculation based on how much am I contributing and how much am I getting out. And some countries that could include the United States may decide in the future when it's simply based on that that uh, we're putting in more than we're getting out of this. And maybe it's it's better to go with coalitions of the willing in the future. I hope that's not the case. Um, and that's why I think it's it's important, again, uh, this week and in the future, to recommit themselves to the founding values of the alliance, not just the founding concept of a defensive alliance against the common enemy. Well, thank you very much. That's a great concluding point. We'll have to see what comes out of this particular celebration, but also the longer-term changes in geopolitics and where are NATO, which is the cornerstone of Canadian defense and security, as we see in all of our official documents, we'll have to see where it goes. But thank you very much for coming and sharing your extensive research and your thoughtfulness. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.